Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. this opportunity to learn with you today. Um, and I really want to, um, I specifically put very few sources on our sheet in order that we can ultimately get the conversation and maybe even application um, on this topic, which there's really a lot to say about. Thank you, Isabel and Eddie. And um, uh, it's worth acknowledging, as we did a few days ago as well, that we're in the nine days now this traditional period uh, leading up to Tisha B'Av this Sunday, um, where we focus on a lot of tragedies the Jewish people have experienced throughout history. They're too numerous, unfortunately, to, to list. Um, reflect on the current ones, reflect on, uh, on Sinat Chinam, where we may hold baseless hatred ourselves, or where we may uh, counter such forces in the world, wherever they may exist against the Jewish people or against other peoples. Um, so, uh, and we live in quite divisive times. Um, I just received a, an email yesterday from a fellow who, whose wedding I performed a year ago. He's not local, so I think I can say this. No one will know him. Um, where he asked, uh, my ideology of the world is fundamentally different from my parents, and I want to cut off a relationship. Um, and in nicer terms, I more or less said, don't you dare. <laughs> um, you hold your ideology passionately um, and know that kibbutz ava'im, respecting parents, does not require you feeling respect on all issues. Um, but there's a, there is a, about as fundamental as it comes to the Torah, an obligation to um, bracketing you know, something very extreme like abuse, of course, where you need to keep yourself safe, um, need to uh, maintain that relationship. And so we're in divisive times. Um, and so the more, more we can cool down that polarization and, uh, and stand for our values, but continue to talk. I saw a headline this morning. I didn't see yeah. it, but somewhere where a lady wrote that basically said um, she's really reaching the point where she wants to keep the grandchildren away from, their, from her in-laws mm -hmm. because they are so um, yeah. politically political. Oh, yeah. This, this is uh, happening quite a bit on all fronts, religiously and politically. Um, and I think th this is actually a big part of what VBM is about, actually. How can we actually deepen our passion for what we care about, deepen it, and yet still talk and learn? You know? um, we don't have to in order to foster pluralism, we don't have to diminish um, you know, our, 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 our conviction in any way. Thank you. So I'm going to try to stick to our hour. Um, uh, I haven't been so good about that at our daytime sessions recently. And I want to just open up by saying um, I, I don't want to approach this topic um, philosophically in the realm of theory, but kind of with a few specific texts to see kind of what emerges 
from those. Some, uh, one or two, one of these may be familiar, uh, two are certainly not familiar. I'd be surprised if you've seen them. And, um, and I have a few goals in mind. One is um, the, the question, Jewishly, of the relationship between law and values, um, which is to say, if one is committed to both, what is the relationship between the two? And I'm also interested in the pluralism conversation. If one is committed to only one of the two, um, are they bridgeable? If someone says, I am a legal Jew, a halachic Jew, and someone else says, I am a Jewish values Jew, are, are those discourses bridgeable? We're not gonna necessarily answer that question, but it's interesting to kind of look at that. And then there's the question of, of, um, um, of American law um, and, um, and American values. We know quite well um, that American law is intended to be something more narrow than morality and ethics, right? Intended to be something more narrow. Um, and, it, the, and we understand in, in American law that those two are not synonymous. Um, what, you know, there are many things in American law that would be permitted that we would think um, are bad. Um, or m m some of us might think. Let me give a few examples. Uh, to, or, or maybe someone wants to throw out an obvious example. Something that American law is permitted that we might think is bad. Okay, so on a religious front, we might say eating pork. Or on another religious front, we might say idolatry. Some of us might think serve, uh, you're bowing to idols is not a good Jewish practice, but we think it should be permitted, right? Um, or someone might say um, uh, adultery. We might say it's bad to, to criminalize people for committing adultery, but we think adultery is a bad idea as a moral practice. Right? Someone might be complicated on abortion. I'm sure we have a range of views in the room. Someone might say, I think abortion is bad, but I vote pro-choice right? um, for various reasons. Or, um, uh, you know, or uh, there might be things that American law, or another example that's interesting is marijuana. Someone might say, I think marijuana should be legalized for various reasons, but I don't support people using marijuana or, or not using it excessively. Right. Okay, now what would be an example of something where American law would um, prohibit something that we might think is actually good? Or maybe not American law, maybe in another country also. Low speed limits. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, low speed limits, right. So if you're driving down to Mexico, there's that one speed trap, what's it called? Where there's like, it's like five or 10 miles an hour for like 10 minutes, you know what I'm talking about? No? Okay, it's a, it literally, uh, it's, I, I, I assume just to get, you know, give a lot of tickets. That's, that's, that's how you yeah. support the community. That's how you support the community, okay. So you can write it off as part of your Sadaka contribution for the year. Not from your VPM contribution, but from another place. Yeah. There are some countries that are now talking about. Yes, um, I bet you, yeah. Um, not that, that circumcision is going to be an issue. Okay, yes, exactly what I was thinking yeah. of, right, exactly. So um, I, am, I, am, I am opposed to legislation that bans circumcision, and I'm opposed to legislation that bans animal slaughter, um, even though the values behind both approaches may actually resonate. To be sure, there's plenty of anti-Semites involved in pushing those, but there are some folks who are not anti-Semites who care about animals and care about children not being cut who are arguing for those, but those are cases where we would think those are good things that Jews want to maintain in the world, and it's bad if, if it's uh, prohibited. Or you might look at, at civil disobedience. What does it mean to say in the 60s, or perhaps something even now, 
um, that the law prohibits, but we feel out of principle we're going to continue to do this thing. I'm going to marry a person of color even though I'm legally not allowed to, um, uh, or the like. Or actually, no, 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 today, uh, no, no, you can. Uh, <laughs> or in Israel, for example, I have a colleague who um, engages in civil disobedience by performing weddings because only the rabbinutes can perform weddings, the chief rabbinate, if you're in that circle. And he doesn't want to be in that circle for various reasons, but he performs weddings knowing that the law is actually, he could be put in jail for life based on the number of weddings he's performed. But he feels his commitment to these families. I was yeah. going to say contraception. Uh, contraception. Fairly recent decades. Yeah. Uh, for example, you, you couldn't legally sell contraceptives in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, okay, interesting. So I think we could think of a lot of examples just looking on the, on the American front. Um, the idea that, that Jewish values, which there's not a great actually word for um, in Hebrew, um, as we talk about values today, um, are in relationship to and may even outweigh Jewish laws, emerges early. The rabbis already innovate this idea that you should abandon any Jewish laws, save three, um, to save your life. Right? This is a fairly well-known principle um, that, you know, um, as I like to say, if someone says, uh, Rabbi, in front of this group, eat this pork or I'll kill you, my answer is pass the barbecue sauce. Right? <laughs> um, but if they say, um, shoot your dear friend Barbara um, or um, uh, we'll shoot you, I have to say you have to shoot me. Right? Um, I, Yes, yes, uh, yes. And uh, um, uh, idolatry, uh, um, uh, uh, adultery, um, or b basically other sexual uh, uh, crimes, um, or murder, right, for those, th those three. So, but that, what's interesting is the Torah never talks about the value of life. It says things like don't kill, but it never says anything that actually the principle of pikuach nefesh, saving life, outweighs the rest. This is a rabbinic innovation that basically says the value of human life is worth more than the rest, okay? Now, to be sure, there's an important disclaimer that many don't say. The, the other case where actually um, we, we wouldn't, we, uh, traditionally we would not violate those other things is in a time of like a mass pogrom or mass persecution where they're basically um, forcing these things um, out of um, mockery of Judaism and are gonna kill those people anyways. Um, and so in the case of eat pork, we're killing all the Jews anyways. In a case like that, defiance may actually be legally acceptable based on the tradition. Um, so, or for example, you might think of this rabbi in the Holocaust, uh, you would never call him a fool, but as making a poor judgment call by not being willing to shave a beard to be killed, because certainly Jewish law would require one to shave one's beard. Um, but in such a situation, that would actually become more normal of, of resisting very basic things. Right. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And actually, in that legal discourse, it goes even further. The value of saving a life. That, um, uh, of course, one should break all of uh, any Jewish uh, law. Well, except for those other three, to to to, to save a life of a Jew or a Gentile. Um, to the extent they said that we're so worried about a doctor not taking the call and showing up, or even a nurse, or a PA, or who, anyone in the medical field. Um, that they can even drive home after, right? In fact, they must drive home after, lest they come to be uh, inclined to not take up the offer to show up, right? So um, something that's not even necessary was then permitted in order to. Okay, yes. Say that 
saving one life, it's like saving the whole world. Right, right, yes, exactly. Um, which is itself worthy of, uh, of interpretation. Uh, what does it mean in a world? So let's look at another rabbinic source here that deals with a, an attempt to ground a law in a value. Um, okay, we don't have so many sources. So we have a volunteer reader here, Babylonian Talmud, Baba Metzia. Someone want to read that for us? Yes, please, Marcia. Some, port some porters negligently broke a barrel of wine belonging to Rabbah, son of Rabbi Huna. Thereon he, thereupon he seized uh, their garments, so they went and complained to Rab. Return them their garments, he ordered. Is that the law, he inquired? Even so, he rejoined, that thou mayest walk in the way of a good man. Their garments have been, have been returned, they observed. We are poor men, have worked all day, aren't in need. Are we to get nothing? Go and pay them, he ordered. Is that the law, he asked? Even so, was his reply, and keep the path of the righteous. Okay, thank you. So, um, this... <laughs> This, you know, people don't think of business place ethics as being a part of uh, Jewish law, but actually it's quite central. There's a number of tractates connected to it. A lot of books written on that. A lot of books written on that. And here we deal with a case where an employer goes to the rabbi to ask um, about how to treat uh, his workers. And, and um, what's interesting about the response? Well, even so, it's, it, it's a moral law, not a, not a legal Okay. Okay, so interesting, he says, they, the question is, is that the law? Like, I don't want to just do a good thing. I'm trying to keep my business going here, you know? I, I want to know what I have to do here. Because as a business owner, you may or may not always have to do a good thing um, beyond what you're required to do. It's not a nonprofit. It's a for-profit. Um, and there's different rules that apply, of course. And so is that the law, he wants to know? And the answer is yes. But what's interesting about the, about the source that's brought, the sources? Right, Laman Telech Bederech Tovim, right? That thou mayest walk in the way of good people. And then, V'orchot Sadikim Tishmor, that one should keep the path of the righteous. They're generic because there's no verse to point to. There is nothing to point to to, um, to demonstrate that actually this is a law. The other interesting thing is that Halakha emerges from the Chumash, the five books of Moses. And Mishle is not a part of that, it's a part of Tanakh but it's not a part of Torah, right, in the, in the first five books. So you don't bring halakha, you don't bring Jewish law from Mishle, right, unless you're really stretching, right? But basically saying that these values are important enough as kind of meta-Torah values that we're going to concretize them into law at this moment. So what, is that, what does that tell us? Yeah, Frank. So it's, it's in American business law right now. If you've got employees and you ask them to do a particular task and be sure you don't do X, uh -huh. and they go out and they screw it up and they yeah. do X, you still have to pay them yeah. for the hours right. that they work. Right, right. And what is the law, if, if you know or anyone knows, on damages that workers uh, uh, create? If it was done without ill intent. Without negligence, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Then it's, the, it's on the owner, essentially. Yeah. 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 Right. The, there's no case where a worker has to compensate for, or, right, if it's negligence. Right. But as an owner, as much as you would like to do otherwise, that's what you're bound to. Yeah. But that's right. why he keeps saying, even so. Even so, yeah, yeah. right. That actually, um, Jewish law is good. We talked about earlier about the case where values go much further than the law, right? That's to say, the law is the floor, and the values reach us to the ceiling. But here we're dealing with sort of the opposite, um, that the law is kind of comes to become uh, e uh, equated. 
Um, now, what's interesting, if you look at the denominational sphere, to state what's probably obvious, the reform movement intentionally moved away from the language of Jewish law, right? Orthodoxy in its full spectrum has many different approaches. I'll come back to that. And the conservative movement, the clergy have maintained the legal discourse, and the high majority of lay people in the conservative movement use the language of tradition as opposed to being bound by law and, and a legal discourse. For example, um, when two years ago, um, I know we have a number of folks in the room who identify with the conservative movement. Two year, two, was it two years ago or three years ago, the conservative rabbis on their legal committee said, Kitniot is now per permitted on pe Pesach. Right? Uh, Kitniot is fine from a legal perspective, but there is a long-standing custom to not eat these other things like rice for Ashkenazic Jews. And so the conservative movement now permitted it. And I think the majority of the conservative movement was like, whoop de doo we were already eating that for decades. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, good job, rabbis. Right? But part of it yes. was to sort of even it with Israel. Because yeah. in Israel, yeah. everybody was eating it. Right. And that was really creating mm -hmm. a problem uh -huh. Interesting. in Israel. Yeah. Because you know, some Ashkenazi people would say, well, you know, are we eating kidneyoto, right. aren't we? Right. So it was kind of to make it even. Yeah, right. So I, I, I have some Ashkenazic friends who have joked they only married their Sephardic spouse in order to eat rice on, uh, <laughs> on, on Passover. Um, so, but so, yeah, so, so it's a case, um, so the conservative movement kind of um, on, the, on, a, on a top level kind of holds on to that, but on a grassroots level um, has a different relationship to it. And then within orthodoxy, it's actually quite interesting that the Haredi world, the ultra-orthodox world, takes a similar approach to the most kind of left-wing um, uh, halakhic egalitarian world, they call it, um, where they actually equate values and law um, in ways that would be uh, diametrically opposed, where the halakhic egalitarian world, for example, is going to say, we came to the conclusion already that we want an egalitarian framework. Men and women are going to lead prayers together. Now that that value exists, the law is going to have to kind of make that happen. Whereas in the ultra-Orthodox world, they're going to say, oh, we have a value of more modesty for women, and so we're going to create new laws on how women are going to dress. <laughs> Total different conclusions, but basically going to say values are going to drive the process. As opposed to kind of this middle camp of orthodoxy today, call that modern orthodox, centrist orthodox, uh, yeshivish light. Um, and they are going to basically say values and law are intention. They're intention, they're separate systems, and we're gonna engage in legal formalism, which basically says we have principles, and those principles, um, uh, we apply those principles to facts. And it's a science. There's a science of how it's done, and actually you're gonna have to sacrifice your values um, at times. It's kind of that akedah, that binding of Isaac experience. Oh, I know killing my son is bad, but God said to do it. So bracket your values. Um, they're going to say. It's kind of a, uh, what Kierkegaard talks about, the, the teleological suspension of the ethical in the name of commitment to God. I'm going to have to suspend what I know to be ethical because submission to God is not synonymous to ethics. It's something that goes beyond that is what they're going to argue. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. So the value right. Say, yes. Might be 
Okay, good. So when you deal with cultural relativism, it gets quite complex. Of like, what's the role of, 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 uh, of a feminist in America in regards to female genital cutting in a village in Africa, right? Um, do I respect their culture, that's what they embrace? Or do I say, look, this is actually hurting girls and women in lots of ways, and I want to kind of fight that. that that's, that's a complicated question. Or so too, um, if someone says, look, I'm really uncomfortable with a whole bunch of things in ultra-Orthodoxy, um, which ones are actually, you know, fair game for your choice? Like, okay, pray however you want. And which ones, like domestic abuse or child abuse um, or, or the like, um, or, or uh, interesting questions around vaccination, right? Which ones are we going to actually uh, going to, uh, you know, protest, you know, as part of the community? Uh, yes, please. Now, some of this has been used against us by, by others. Uh-huh. Uh, for example, the Inquisition yeah. uh, in, in, uh, in Spain, in yeah. Europe, uh, when uh, basically Christians said, yes, we know we're not supposed to kill and torture, but we have some values that, uh, that override that. Mm -hmm. Right. Luck. Yes, like right. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, and so what, ha right. So what happens, um, right, when one feels that accepting Jesus Christ as their savior actually is the number one value? And it overrides other things. What happens in Israel when, um, when someone thinks adherence to Jewish law is the most important thing for the whole society or state? Um, so these, these are complicated uh, questions. But let me throw out a different question, which is relevant. What is a Jewish value? Well, let's, let's bracket that one. That's, a, that's another session. <laughs> Rabbi David Ellenson is coming out this year on that topic. Uh, he, he's a lot to say. But what is, uh, um, and, and I think it's relevant, but what is a Jewish value? What, what, what would be included in what we would call a Jewish value? What would be the criteria as to what's in, what's out? Responsibilities to the community. Okay, responsibilities to the community. Okay, so I don't mean, name, I, I don't mean let's name specific ones. I mean, what would be the process of us deciding what is a Jewish value and what's not? Yes. You might look behind the intentions of the mitzvot. Okay. Uh, okay. Great. So one might be um, the ta'amei hamitzvot. So as you know, traditionally there were those who said we don't know anything about the reasons about these things. This is about submission, and others who said, like Maimonides, Maimonidean tradition, that there are ta'amei hamitzvot. There are, are there is a teleology. There are reasons behind these things about fostering the good person and the good society and the good community, and those reasons are things. Um, that help us understand what the mitzvot are all about. So if one articulates it as emerging from there, interesting. Okay. Anyone else? Yes. Uh, well, we're a rabbinical religion. Uh-huh. So consulting rabbis. Okay, good. So one might be, um, and, and these days that rabbi is called Rabbi Google. Um, <laughs> um, that's the, definitely the most, uh, uh, the most commonly uh, asked, Consulting. consulted rabbi uh, for free, too. Um, so one might be um, rabbinic consultation. One might be reason of mitzvot. One, someone else might say precedence. Is there any precedence in Jewish history of this being invoked as a value? Now, someone else might say language. Is it expressed in Jewish language? Now, that's changing in America pretty rapidly. Jewish language used to mean Hebrew in America, right? If someone says tikkun olam, that's different than saying civic engagement, right? 
Civic engagement, not a Jewish value in its language. Tikkun olam um, means, means a Jewish value. Um, but what does it mean if you live in Israel and everyone speaks Hebrew? Is anything I say now a Jewish value as a secular Israeli or as a, or as a religious Israeli? So language is quite complicated. And, and, and there's a shift that young American Jews today don't know any Hebrew. And, and the Sunday schools, by and large, have chosen, because of the lack of, uh, of, of, of efficacy of those programs, at teaching Hebrew. They say, let's actually get these values across, right? And, and the language stuff is not going to be as effective. Um, and so what does it mean now if it's, if it's spoken English? Is democracy a Jewish value? Well, how would I have to demonstrate that it is or that it's not? Um, is feminism, is social justice, are those Jewish values? Is capitalism or is socialism, are those Jewish values? Is Zionism a Jewish value, right? And how would you demonstrate this modern idea of the 20th century, or really Herzl just before, is itself a Jewish value? A secular Jew who in late modernity um, kind of uh, you know, in, invents a value, and there's plenty of texts that demonstrate the value of Israel, or the idea of Jews living there, or of supporting there, but as Zionism, as we talk about it as a modern secular idea, is that a Jewish value? Okay, the other thing someone might raise as determining if someone thinks a Jewish value, uh, I, I would argue, um, is the process of getting there. Um, is it dialectical? Which is to say, um, one might argue, as, as I would, if a value is expressed as an absolute, it's probably not a Jewish value, because Jewish values in their process of formation throughout history were engaged in machloket, that is to say, in a dialectical process of argumentation. Um, rarely are there Jewish values that are not existing in tension with others. Emet is, exists in tension with shalom, truth and peace, right? Even this value of life we just talked about, which feels like the highest, exists in tension in history with these other things we want to preserve, right? Whether we're talking about end of life, whether we're talking about abortion, whether we're talking about, again, pogroms or about, um, or about, about threats. Um, yes, please. The idea is a Jewish value. You hear that the word a lot, being a match. Ah, what does yes. that mean? Good, yes. And I think a lot of that idea right. came from just living a righteous life. Yeah. And that means being a match, which means, you know, taking into account yeah. other people's great, great. feelings yeah. and other people's um, yeah. treatment of them and all of that kind of It's so interesting how that took off because, because we don't really, you could construct an argument, but it's such a late phenomenon, this idea of menschlichkeit. You know, uh, it'd be interesting to actually explore the roots of that. Um, yes, please, yeah. Aren't values relative? Yes, yes, okay, good. Uh, you wanna say more? Okay, yes, good, because I think, that's, that, that, I think that would be the other test. If, if invoking this value means you can now do whatever you want, that might not be a Jewish value. If tikkun olam means, now I argue any ideology I want, right? then is tikkun olam really a, a, we did a whole session on tikkun olam a number of weeks ago. You can listen to the podcast if you're interested. Um, is, is that actually a, a, of any value at all, right? To basically say tikkun olam, now anything I advocate for fits under that rubric, where actually tikkun olam is a very new idea, is actually being invoked in the way that it's invoked today. Um, yeah, but yes. Yeah. Yes, oh, yes, great point. That, yes. Society changes and matures. Yes. Our values change with it. Great. Okay, so the argument of those who favor law over values is the law is eternal, right? The law, as it, it was concretized throughout tradition, yes, it evolves, 
Um, but the law is eternal. Values are extremely relative to time period and to culture and the like. And so uh, what does that mean for us? Um, what does that mean? And so those changes happen really rapidly and all the more rapidly today than ever before. If you look at the LGBT, LGBT issue, this country in the last decade has evolved so fast. Um, um, former President Barack Obama in his first election was opposed to gay marriage, right? Um, so, you know, so if you look at just the Democratic Party, not to mention the Republican Party and, and how both parties have evolved on this. If you look at the issue of intermarriage in American, uh, American Jewish life, um, where, the, where, the, where the reform movement was on it, where the conservative movement was, even where orthodoxy is today on it. Um, that, you know, um, uh, which is another case of where someone might um, uh, be opposed to the idea and yet in support of it happening in some sense, right? Um, yes, please, yeah. But don't laws also evolve over time? Yes, yes. Um, but, but, the, but intentionally based into the law, in American law and Jewish law, is con a process of continuity. That it be slow. Even very progressive jurists are, are, are want continuity. They want to invoke, right, a, a conservative jurist is going to invoke original intent, um, and a progressive one is going to invoke something more of a consequentialist type of uh, approach. But both of them are going to ground precedence. The law doesn't change. The interpretation. Yes, exactly. 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 Thank you. The inter it's the interpretation that's going to change. Uh, they're all going to argue. Um, it'd be hard to, and, and that the continuity um, in the name of interpretation. It's going to be hard for someone to argue they're really interested in the law if they're arguing for just a total change of the law um, as opposed to a new interpretation. For example, those engaged in halakha who now want to permit gay sex, right, uh, have all these arguments. They're saying, actually, we're not saying re remove the verse. We're not saying that doesn't exist. They're actually saying, oh, so here's, here's one of the common arguments. Oh, what they're actually dealing with over there was a case of a heterosexual who was engaged in homosexual activity. They're not dealing with someone who was born gay because the problem in the heterosexual who's engaged in homosexual activity is they're likely um, a victim of abuse of power. There were male teachers who performed anal sex on their male students uh, as, a, as an act of power, and that was what they were concerned with, these folks will argue. Um, they were not actually dealing with um, someone whose only desire was for a man, uh, as, a, you know, as, a, as another man. So they're engaged in these reinterpretations of verses. Um, and actually, that happened, that was like built into the rabbinic process, of course. Um, that happens. And then there's radical overturning. Can some folks think of some radical overturning in the Talmud of biblical law? What are some examples? Stoning, yeah. You, you stone your wayward child. Now, um, anyone who has ever in this room had a child uh, <laughs> may have experienced um, some pushback, let's call it, at some points in life. Yeah. Sacrifice. Animal sacrifice and human sacrifice. Um, actually, that's why the Akedah could be read as a progressive story, because it's actually the transition from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice. Um, uh, you know, it's actually moving things forward in some sense. Um, yes, please, yeah. No, I just have a question. I don't know if yeah. it fits in because my mind is like yeah. going right. like yes. this yeah, yeah. here. Um, a question of, and I don't know what the answer to this mm -hmm. is anymore, the matrilineal and patrilineal descent. descent. Yeah. And I don't know where it stands yep. now. And right. you go through the whole thing. It's a child who was 
born with a right. Jewish father. Good, yeah. And was in Hebrew school and managed to be bar right. somehow. Yeah. You know, and all this stuff. How do you say that they're not Jewish? Oh, great. So that's an example where it goes the opposite way. Right, as opposed to making things kind of easier or more modern, in some ways it makes it more strict. Right, we know on the level of the Mishnah, the first stage of the Talmud, uh, patrilineal descent is uh, is still uh, accepted. Um, uh, 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 well, it, it is it is engaged with even if it loses the the, the battle um, based upon biblical precedents, obviously. Um, and what, what marriage looks like is actually different, and what conversion looks like is fundamentally different. And then it becomes clear in the Talmud that they're going to reject this for the matrilineal approach. So what does it mean to kind of jump back eras is also kind of a fascinating uh, question. Yeah? So I didn't come to the class planning to be an anarchist. <laughs> <laughs> in listening to the discussion, I'm thinking values according to whom. Uh-huh. And if I look around the room, right. I assume there'd be some overlap, but a, a large range of values that, that we probably couldn't all agree to. There'd oh, yeah. We could agree to, but right. a lot of things we couldn't. And so it comes down to my values. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and um, yeah, let me, so let me come back to that point in a moment. Uh, go, just to throw out a few other examples of many. Remember the case of the Sota in the Bible of... Um, of what happens when a woman is thought to be uh, an adulteress. Or think of the case of the Yovel, um, the, the, the case of um, the Jubilee, of, of uh, uh, canceling debts. The rabbis had a whole innovation to make sure loans could still happen, that there wouldn't be a threat of canceling debts. Or the Shemitah year, right? In Israel, they were worried about economic collapse if people didn't work the land in the seventh year, so they had all these maneuvers. Or the selling of chametz. Right on Passover, I'm just gonna put it. All, I'm gonna put my bread in the closet, close the closet, and find Jaime. He works at my synagogue and sell sell my chametz to to, uh, 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 to Jaime. Yeah, you know. And now, now all of a sudden, the thing that I own, I don't really own. So there were all these kind of uh, legal fictions that were constructed. The Shabbos elevator, right? There's all these things that were kind of employed in order to uh, to make things easier in various ways. Um, so. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. The timer actually—it's—it's um, it's kind of a—it's kind of a hidden secret. It's kind of a hidden secret among the Orthodox rabbinic establishment um, of how easy it would be to kind of uh, navigate electricity issues, but their belief that it would destroy Shabbat as they know it if that happened. But they do—they have Shabbat uh, yeah. stoves. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Everything built on timers, exactly. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, okay, all right. So, um, okay, the other thing we know, just one, one before, point before, before Hannah, um, is that um, we also know in a post-Freudian world um, that there is no ability to access objective truth, right? All, all data passes through the subjectivity of the mind. And so there is no access to this purely legal analysis devoid of one's own filters and values, right? Which ought to make us, which ought to make any process of legal construction that is devoid of values suspect. Which is to basically say that anyone who is not transparent of the values that are a part of a legal process um, uh, should be pushed to produce those. Um, and in fact, in the le- Jewish legal discourse, many times it is transparent, and many times it's not. Um, uh, okay, so um, I want to get back to yes, please, one yeah, good, good, yeah. Said, mm-hmm. said here um, that you are supposed to, even though it's not in the law, yeah. and you know that kind of thing. Um, 
but some of these are in the law. They mm -hmm. are in the yeah. in the Torah where yeah. they are talking about making sure that we take care of the poor. Yeah. And in this case, the reference is here that these workers are poor mm -hmm. and you can't, even though it may not mm. be exactly specifically in the yeah. law. Yeah. It's implied right, right. that you are supposed to take care of Okay, so that, that's a good example, exactly, where they would say exactly that they want the law to be narrow. When it says taking care of the poor, here's exactly what that's going to mean, what you do with your field. And we're going to analyze that to death, you know, about what you have to do there. Um, but when it comes to just our treatment of poor in society and, and the worker as, as being treated as someone who is impoverished, um, they're going to say, now you're going to have to extrapolate uh, you know, values but from that. It says that. in the Torah yeah. that you must pay them before the end of the week. Exactly. End of the day. End of the day. Exactly. Uh, less, and the most common interpretation of that, lest they die. They are hand to mouth, uh, lest they die. Uh, and so today, you know, we might commonly think of payments being made twice a month or, or, or the like. But, um, uh, but yeah, that, bracketing a contract, the biblical obligation is daily, daily pay. So yeah. if these workers yeah. okay, had been quite wealthy, yeah. uh, what would we say here? Uh, would we say it's okay to charge them for the negligence? Mm -hmm. I mean, take an, uh, yeah. uh, a modern-day example. Mm -hmm. A very highly paid software engineer mm -hmm. does something negligent mm -hmm. in right. producing the software. Right. Or take Boeing, okay, and the people who <laughs> yeah, yeah. made a certain decision right, about, right. So about software, okay, can they be held liable for, for any of this? Yeah, right. Fascinating, right. So, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we, we teach all kinds of interesting things to our kids, but Baltalin or, um, or Oshek, I mean, prohibitions, I mean, how we engage with workers, how, our, our notion of business ethics, why isn't this built into more of our learning and, and our discourse? Because these, these conversations, I think engaging with teens, for example, around case studies. You know, is really interesting. Getting thinking around in a Kohlbergian sense, Lori, uh, uh, Lawrence Kohlberg fashion around moral development. So, okay, let's bracket Moses Pava. Moses Pava just retired as a professor of business ethics, uh, as the dean of a business school, and you can look at that later. His interpretation of this first text, if you're interested. And let's jump to the Ramban Nachmanides, not to be mistaken with the Rambam Maimonides. Uh, this one argues with the Ram Rambam all the time. He is 13th century Spain, and then after he had to leave. For some not so nice reasons, um, he moved to Israel um, in 13th century. And this is a very famous idea of Nachmanides, and, which deals with this idea of lovers values. So, uh, someone who can read this loudly for us. And thou shalt be holy, for I, the Lord thy God, am holy. The meaning is as follows. The Torah has admonished us against sexual immorality and forbidden foods but permitted sexual intercourse between a man and his wife and the eating of meat and drinking of wine. If so, a man of lust could find the legal allowance to be lustfully addicted to sexual intercourse with his wife or with many wives and be among the wine imbibers and glutinous eaters of flesh and speak freely all profanity since this prohibition has not been stated explicitly in the Torah. Thus, he will be a base, sordid man within the allowance. Okay, that's the Hebrew phrase to hold on to. Naval birshut ha-Torah. A disgusting person with the permission of the Torah. Okay, read one more paragraph. Therefore, the Torah came after having listed the specific matters which are completely forbidden 
and commanded in a general sense that we should restrain ourselves, even in permitted realms. Moderation. Okay, awesome. Thank you. So, so one, we know well that one can go. Um, one can go to church or to synagogue and pray and then go, you know, cheat an hour later on whatever they're going to cheat on. Actually, uh, uh, most of you will remember my church story relevant to this. Anyone? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, two, two summers ago, um, I was jogging in the 115-degree summer, uh, quite hot um, and, and silly. And at that time, I didn't run with my phone. And I kicked the curb, and I broke some bones in my foot. Um, which had never happened. I've been running for a long time. And, uh, and I was down on the side of the road for about an hour, waving. Nobody was stopping. Anyone recall this story? Yes, yeah, so friends. Okay. And um, finally, a woman on her bike rolls by. Um, and I say, oh, Mashiach is here. You know, finally, I've been waiting for Mashiach this whole time. You know, I, I didn't know what she'd look like, but you look like a... <laughs> exactly. I say, please, can you call my wife? I got to go to the hospital. I got a I had to have two surgeries in the end. Thankfully, I got a surgeon in the family. <laughs> um, I, mean, I, I, I had to pay in full, but <laughs> a surgeon in the family, nonetheless. Um, and uh, I said, please, can you call my wife? I got to go to the hospital. I'm about to pass out out here. She looks at her watch and she looks at me and she says, I'm so sorry. I'm late for church. <laughs> Right? And, I, and, I, and I think of that all the time, you know, because you can say late for synagogue, wherever, you know. We're so busy in our religious duty, you know, that we miss the moral responsibility right in front of us, right? So one could pray and whatever they're going to do and it not affect them. Or one could actually be totally, totally adhering to the Jewish law. And the examples here are interesting that they, even though they, uh, you know, uh, engage in the sexual ethics of the Jewish tradition, um, that they are um, overly uh, lustful. Um, even with one spouse, they are overly desirous, um, uh, and, and presumably that means there's some, you know, in a pre-modern time, some coercion um, and um, non-consensual you know, non activity probably happening as well, though that's not explicit here. Um, and, um, and one could be a glutton. Hey, I'm eating kosher, I'm eating kosher meat, so I'm going to eat it six times a day, right? Um, uh, or I'm drinking kosher wine, so I'm going to get drunk every night, right? So the, the, the idea of, and I want to hear your, your thought on this, naval birshuta Torah, the law can permit everything I'm about to do, and, um, and yet one could be disgusting by, by doing that. So aren't yeah. we talking in, in a lot of this about yeah. the difference between uh, the letter and the spirit of the law? Yeah, yeah. So, so that is, that is uh, exactly a big part of it here. Exactly. And actually, there are some cases um, that would be really uh, uh, more problematic. Um, for example, there are those who argued, um, thankfully they were minimized, um, but there were those who argued in the history of Jewish law that one could steal from a, a Gentile. Um, more, so more, people yeah. That so people still say that today. Right. Yeah. Right. You can, or you can fudge your taxes because this is a, you know, this is still basically a Russian government that we're living under. You know, uh, actually today there could be some jokes about that, but, <laughs> uh, but we're not going there. We're not going there. <laughs> um, you know, th that we're still living under a Russian regime. <laughs> yeah. Please. Yeah. So, so the word that's mentioned here is uh, moderation, or another word is balance, and I don't recall. Uh -huh. In the Torah. Yes. Good. So Maimonides invents that out of the Aristotelian ethos of the golden mean, 
Maimonides has this whole thing in Hilcho Deod around the value of balance, which is totally Aristotelian, and, um, and that kind of gets, the idea of balance is not there, or is not there earlier. But here, the Ramban, either he really, really believes in Kedusha, in holiness, or that's just his hook for this, because he's bringing a verse here, Kedoshim to you, you shall be holy. And what does it mean, this value of holiness, or this law of holiness, actually means the spirit of the law. Don't think the letter of the law is enough, right? You might actually be a jerk and be really frum, right? You might be really ritually pious, um, but not be a mensch. Yeah, please. Yeah. Commit to what is that? Okay, interesting. And then actually, the fl- I've often wondered about the flip side. Tell me if you've thought about this as well. To what extent is an employee a valid representation of the employer? For example, I, I'm in Starbucks and I spill my coffee. And I go with my pity case to the counter. Oh, I spilled my coffee. More like, can I have a new one? <laughs> you know? um, and they say, oh, yeah, we'd like to give you, a new, you know, here's a new one. Can I trust the employee is following the rules of the employer? Or are they just being nice to me? Can, or, you know. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So you would say you can trust the employees representing the values of the employer, right? Assuming. Assuming. Training. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Let's yeah. Great. Okay. Great. So, so Larry Kohlberg, I mentioned him earlier. Is that name ring a bell for folks? Okay. A Jewish guy. Um, who was the founder of the field moral development at Harvard Education School. And, um, and he had this hierarchy of moral development where he basically said obedience is the lowest. A young child, you tell them what to do and they do it. That, that means they've done right. Then you kind of get beyond the, um, the, the, um, uh, the following of rules. Uh, you get to obedience to rules. And then the next layer beyond rules is um, conscience. Right, that sometimes the conscience will be different than rules. Now, then his students, Carol Gilligan, that name ring a bell at anyone? Famous kind of feminist in America in the 1980s. And it turns out that Kohlberg actually committed suicide, it seems, um, which is kind of tragic for the founder of moral development. Uh, but, he, but it was a complicated case. Anyways, his student, Carol Gilligan, was like, huh, what's interesting about your research is that lots of men are falling out on level, four, on level five out of six in the moral, uh, morally enlightened, and a lot of women are falling out on the four. Um, actually, I, I, and she challenges him on that. Actually, I missed a layer, I'm sorry. Obedience to rules, the next layer 
is then um, uh, a level of social conformity, which is relationship-based. Then the higher level is, is basically principles over relationships or conscience over relationships. So Gilligan then does her own study to show that his study must be flawed if it means men are more morally enlightened than women. In fact, if we've learned anything in, um, in recent years, it's, it's the opposite. Um, as one example, how many of these mass shooters have been women, <laughs> right? Um, there's lots of other examples. Uh, yeah, the Me Too movement and abuse and, uh, okay. Anyways, um, so, um, so she then looks, for example, one of her famous studies looks at kids on the playground. And they found that boys, when boys um, were in an argument of a basketball game, they chose rules over relationships. They quit the basketball game. They ended the game instead of changing the rules. Girls in a fight on the game on the playground changed the rules to accommodate, to keep the relationships together, right? It's kind of like a stereotypical Jewish family of the 1950s. The dad says, if you intermarry, I'm saying Kaddish, you're out. And the mother says, come on, we got to... This is our kid. Come on, we gotta embrace our kid, right? This is the this is our child. You know, forget the rule. You know, so it, it, there's a lot of stereotypical stuff involved there. But her book called In a Different Voice kind of shows actually there's different ways based on gender that rules and relationships are going to be navigated. Um, which, anyways, kind of interesting. So another principle that gets that emerges here is kiddush Hashem and chilo Hashem a desecration of God's name or a consecration of God's name, which becomes a huge meta-Torah value that um, goes beyond the law, which is to say, even if one's doing what the Jewish tradition allowed or advocated for, if this is going to look bad for Jews, you can't do it, right? What would be... Uh, being a mensch. Being, being, a, being a mensch. But, even, but also it produces what some of us might embrace or some of us might cringe at, a double standard. For the good. said the Jews actually now need to do something that is beyond a, a reasonable expectation because we are obsessed with the reputation of the Jews. We cringe more and more when it's a Bernie Madoff or it's a Jeffrey Epstein um, for, for obvious reasons. Um, and so, or Harvey Weinstein or whoever the case is, um, that we... Um, we uh, um, that we need to go above and beyond to make sure... Um, that, 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 that that can never happen. Um, not only because the Gentiles will want to kill us, um, but also because we feel we have a message and that message for the world to be less received if our compass isn't actually... Uh, a light unto the yeah, world. A, uh, yeah, right. An or le goyim, a, 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 a light unto the world. That's a function of being a minority. We're not the only minority who feels that way. Right. Every minority in America feels that way. Yeah, I... I, I, I they have to be... Right. I think that's true. Uh, however, I think that um, the Jews more than anyone else. Well, because of so much anti-Semitism, it fuels it. Yeah, I, it fuels it. I mean, I think black people know that when a black person is, is committed of a crime on the front of a newspaper, that that furthers racism. Um, certainly Muslims know that, that if a Muslim's involved in a shooting, it's going to lead to you know, Muslims are terrorists, a Muslim ban, this and that, you know, uh, in a different way than it would if, you know, if a white person was on, right? And, and that if a Jew is involved in a financial crime, it's going to look, it's going to further that stereotype. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so in very different ways, you know, as one, uh, as, as, as Yitz Greenberg famously said, it doesn't, you know, uh, it doesn't matter what denomination you are as long as you're embarrassed by it. 
Um, so too, you know you're a Jew if you're disproportionately embarrassed when it's a Jew involved, right? Um, uh, or you know, you know. So, uh, so, so it, it, it actually is a sign of Jewish pride or Jewish identity. It could be used as a, as a positive measurement, actually, the level of embarrassment we have. Um, but actually, it's also a measurement of Jewish peoplehood. Is, is a reformed Jew as embarrassed um, if an ultra-Orthodox Jew is on the paper, right? Or, um, or more embarrassed because of how ex, you know, externally pious they are, as, as it is if, if a secular Jew. But not Stephen like, Miller. Um, oh. Stephen, uh, yeah, or Stephen Miller. Okay, so that's a whole other, yeah. Aren't we responsible for every Jew in the world? Okay, yeah, so the, so so the uh, right. Right, the, oh good, so the principle of Arvut also, that Jews are responsible for Jews, um, also means that it kind of points to uh, our, our, our own failure, our kind of our own uh, complicity to some degree. Um, and because there is this perception still very widely held, especially among minorities in America, that Jews are kind of a, um, have a secret society. A pri not only a, a privileged minority who unfairly use our victimhood status while we have every privilege of the white establishment, they'll argue, but also that we are a secret society that is secretly in control of everything. Um, it's all about the Benjamins. Uh, and that, that more and more has emerged as, as, as fairly being claimed anti-Semitic language. Actually, I was recently invited, I say recently, um, a, a decade ago, invited to a conference that the conference was called Jews and Money. And I remember being in the airport and reading my binder to prepare and realizing on the back of the binder said Jews and Money. I was holding my hand on the other side of the binder, you know, as I'm preparing for this conference. So anyways, Kiddush Hashem and Chilah Hashem are very commonly invoked as meta values as to what Jews should do well beyond the law. Okay, let's look at one more source. Um, and then we'll, oh, oh, okay, all right, and we're, and we're close to our time. Okay, so now, now is that, uh, that moment of embarrassment where I say, I'm sorry, we're gonna go a little over time. <laughs> um, uh, well, we'll look at this last source and then we'll, 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 we'll bring up some conversation and questions that folks uh, wanna raise around application and the like. So, okay, so um, probably none of you have heard of this fellow, which is actually interesting because he makes Yerida, uh, as they call it, rather than Aliyah. Oftentimes, uh, someone who is in the diaspora and they move to Israel, they become more well-known globally. But in this case, this is someone who moves to Jersey, uh, becomes a Jersey boy who's from Yerushalayim. Nothing against Jersey. I'm actually, I lived in Jersey six years. Uh, <laughs> my mother's from Jersey. My in-laws are in Jersey. It's a great place in many ways. Um, um, but, uh, but so he moves to Jersey, so he's not, he's not so well-known, Rabbi Chaim Hershenson. He is a student and in some ways, a really contemporary actually, of Rabbi Cook, famously Rabbi Cook. And, um, and, and here's what he argues over here. Uh, someone with a loud voice. Great. The words of the Torah are ways of pleasantness and all its paths are... Okay, that's a famous uh, f phrase there. Torah, derachecha darche noam. Shalom, right? This is a part of tefillah, of, our, of traditional prayer, okay? And there is no principle or law in the Torah which will oppose the values or paths of the true civilization. And the Torah will never require us to do something that goes against wisdom and understanding. It is incumbent upon us to consider every matter from the perspective of values, Musar, and logic together. And when we find that it is good and upright and correct and established from the perspective of these two foundations, then we must look at the halakha, 
whose ways are ways of blessedness, and all its paths are peace, which will, without a doubt, never oppose that which is right and proper from the perspective of logic and values. And if we discover that the halakha does contradict this position, then we must toil until we can resolve this, because it is not empty from us, and either we have not understood the halakha correctly or the value correctly. But to reject every good and beneficial thing among our people with the builder's rod of some are strict, it is not regarding this attitude that the rabbis say, whoever is strict will receive a blessing. Okay, awesome, thank you. So this is actually a pretty radical and provocative piece. It does, may not seem radical to us today, but especially in its time period, and of trying to entertain this dance, because in modernity, this thing called autonomy emerges, right? This problem of autonomy, right? As opposed to authority. Everything was based on authority. That's how you know what's right and what's good. Um, especially in ages where the masses were uh, highly or completely uh, illiterate. And now we have this problem where individuals want to make their own decisions, right? Um, and so how do we maintain Judaism? How does Judaism stay alive when we want to maintain a tradition while there's this thing called autonomy where people want to make their own choices? And now we want to actually promote the value of people developing themselves, and yet, Oh, I understand you love meditation, but we need to have a minion. We need to have, keep our synagogue services going. I understand that you like to listen to, you know, Barbara Streisand's uh, version of Avinu Malkinu instead of our choruses, but we actually want to have some folks here, right? Um, you know, and I understand that you've decided that, like, these things aren't, aren't ideal, but we need to maintain, like, a communal, communal norms. So how do we keep Judaism alive and a Jewish tradition alive while also honoring the fact that people are cultivating these values that matter a lot to them? And so Hershenson is going to say the Torah itself built into it is the value of shalom, the value of peace, and nothing cannot be furthering the good and the peaceful. And if it is, you misunderstood the law. This echoes the sources of Sadia Goen from the 11th century, 10th century, which aren't known so well, where he basically says there can never be a clash of logic and law. And if there is, you're making a mistaken interpretation of one of them. You gotta go back and work it out. Go back to the law, you must be misinterpreting, or go back to the logic, you're misunderstanding it. Same thing about values and law. That the two need to be in sync, and if they're not, you're misunderstanding one of them, so you have to do the hard work, right? Don't just say, oh, one of them is wrong, right? And dismiss it, rather do the work to bring them back in sync. Or Rabbi Cook says that to silence one's conscience is to destroy one's yirat shamayim, one's awe of the heavens. So you can't silence your conscience in the name of the tradition. Right, that, that, that destroyed, think about who's the first Jew? Avraham. He says, God, you think you're so, how could you be just? He challenges the source of all law, all authority. You can't be just because I know in my conscience that killing, that killing all of Stoma and Amora, to kill everyone there if there's some innocent people is morally problematic. So you as the authority, I'm going to challenge you and the law, I'm going to challenge it. And, and God doesn't push back on that. It's an amazing aspect of our tradition, right? This is unique among traditions, right? That actually challenging God is almost never, you can go back to our podcast with Dove Weiss, is almost never in the Midrashim and in the Tanakh looked down upon by God, right? The argument is engaged and never, rarely is it silence you, right? One of the only times we actually we see that Moses really wants to go into Israel and eventually God's like enough, 
right? But even there, God's not like, how dare you challenge me, you little pitcher, right? <laughs> it's more like, you're wrong. Enough with your debate, but I'm gonna right, engage it for enough time. So, um, so, so this is kind of an interesting idea too, that we have to kind of toil in the tradition in order to get to this ethical resolution. Okay, so let me pause here for some thoughts and, uh, yes, please, yeah. Yeah, please, yeah. Um, so all the paths are towards peace. There's seg uh, well, there segments of the Torah yeah. that are all about war. Mm. How, to, how to do it? Ah, so here's a great innovation. The Talmud, for example, says all those cases where it looks like the Torah is advocating for genocide, um, the Talmud says, and Maimonides really concretized this, is that um, um, a drishat shalom has to be issued first. A call for peace has to, and the, now this might not resolve the problem for us, because it is a problem. Um, but a call for peace had to happen first. You can't just go in and wipe people out. You have to be like, we want to work this out. We're, this is going to be our land for various reasons, but we're going to give the chance for a peaceful coexistence. And if you are going to reject that and living in the land with values, then we're, we're on our way in. So they're going to actually engage in that exact process of, of qualifying um, or the most classical example would be those who didn't view the death penalty or didn't view the death penalty in an expansive sense as a path towards peace, who made it virtually impossible in the Talmud to continue to execute death penalty in excess or, or commonly. Um, you know, that happens quite frequently. So I think that, um, uh, yes, please. Yeah. They always um, yeah. drop pamphlets saying, we're coming after you, we just want you to Right, yeah, An another good example, exactly, right? Knocking on doors, I mean, these oh, cases, they doors. put the soldiers at great risk many times. Yeah, yeah, yes, please. Um, one of the things that, when I'm reading here, this is sort of thinking of some of the stuff, particularly when we were living mm. in Chicago, there was this idea of to outdrop each other. Uh -huh, yeah. You know, right. and, um, yeah. you know, this is not glad enough, and this is, right. you know, and there was a whole community within the Orthodox community and some kosher butchers shut yeah, down right. because they were not enough. How does that fit into this description of that everything's got to be a path and pleasantness and all that? that oh, yes. Yeah. So they, right. So, so this is just another case where they're selecting different pre-modern values to take precedence over the ones we would choose. So they would say lifni mishirat adin is a big value to, to go above and beyond the letter of the law. And uh, kedoshim to you, we should be holy. And that means extra layers of stringency are going to put, put up these fences, are going to protect the law itself. And so we're going to prioritize women's modesty over women's rights. We're going to prioritize um, um, being more stringent on kosher laws than we are on the cost that's going to lead our community to have to pay for that. Right? or the treatment of animals, or the treatment of workers, whatever the case is. Or another example, I've been involved in a campaign for the last decade that kosher restaurants should provide transparency that they pay their workers according to US law um, instead, of, instead of below minimum wage, um, as is common in many uh, uh, parts of the restaurant industry. Um, um, and, um, and the kosher establishments have not gotten behind that for the most part, but they do, for example, pull their hashkacha, their kosher certification, where there is music and alcohol served. Why? It's gonna to lead to mixed dancing. <laughs> so we can't have music on, and it's gonna to lead to, or also the glot yacht, that you know, it costs a fortune, 
Um, and yet, you know, um, based on people who are going to be dressed, they're going to pull it, but not based on other concerns. So, um, however, I know folks who don't typically operate by the traditional legal structure who are now embracing the language of law in other areas. For example, they're saying, well, what should our laws be in our Jewish community around the Me Too movement, right? Like, we need some new frameworks to think about abuse um, uh, in, in, in Jewish communities and, and Jewish institutions. Or what about um, environmentalism? Like, what is going to be our institutional commitments around waste? Um, so where people are kind of yearning for more raw rules and laws as opposed to kind of pushing them away. So um, yeah, other, other uh, closing thoughts or questions here? I'm yeah. reminded in some of this of the Merchant of Venice uh -huh. uh, and, and the uh, uh, speech uh, uh, when Borsha famously says, you know, the quality of mercy is not strained. Uh, by law, Shylock is entitled, well, look, contra by contract law, Shylock is entitled uh, to uh, uh, his pound of flesh. But uh, she's telling him, wait a minute, values are important here. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you're going to hurt somebody. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, so, 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 um, so, so here's what I want to I I close with, uh, more questions than answers for sure. But um, one is that, that, that the major problems we're seeing where this is relevant, one is in peoplehood, right? The fact that we actually don't know how to talk to each other anymore in, in the Jewish community because the discourses are so fundamentally different. That those who feel Rabbi Moshe Feinstein said this or the Lubavitcher Rebbe said this, um, or Rebbe Soloveitchik said this, so that's what obviously Judaism is, is, is playing by a whole different game by someone who says, look, this is what it means to be a mensch or this is what tikkun olam is, right? And actually the way to even discuss or even argue uh, is very difficult. Um, if I say, this is a halacha, what do you want from me, right? Or this is what is an obvious Jewish value. So that's one problem we have, is how do Jews actually talk um, to each other? The other problem is, um, there's very little bit of values education. Values education of fostering an intellectual values discourse, right? Because on one end, it's all law, right? And it's authority-based, so I don't actually have to think about values, which creates a whole set of problems. And on the other hand, it's so personalized where basically personal values equate with Jewish values. There's nothing that I don't think is good that Judaism disagrees with, which becomes awfully convenient, right? Then actually, does Judaism have anything to say? And now Jewish learning is totally irrelevant for me because it can't possibly say something I don't, I don't already agree with. And so what do I need it for, right? It, can it possibly challenge my thinking? And so how do we actually enhance the Jewish educational experience of thinking about values if it has nothing to say, right? So, um, uh, so those are two of the problems we have. Um, and then the third is, um, how do we kind of chart a path forward, right? What is it we want our kids to know? And how are we going to actually teach that? What are the norms that our institutions should be guided by? What are the values that are dominant as when we think about our, our institutions, when we think about the state of Israel, when we think about our societal responsibility? Because I see a weakening of those. I see a weakening of any link to something that is uh, Jewish and that is intellectual and spiritually rooted um, and that is actually being lived, right? We see a strengthening of the Musar movement, which is interesting. A certain set of Jewish values, a very specific set, um, which are being kind of harnessed more, uh, more deeply. Um, and we see in the Hasidic world kind of a move towards this, this piety. 
Um, and then we see in kind of a far left young Jews, let's say early 20s, um, their embrace of, of some far left values in the name of Jewish values, which wasn't normally done. Normally it was like, hey, we're secular Jews, right? We're just like, we're communists, right? And we're not interested in using Torah language. Like, we're, right, yeah, we speak Yiddish or whatever, but like, we're, we're, we're involved in a different enterprise. But these kids who will talk about, um, you know, fighting the occupation um, are doing that in the name of never again and are doing that in the name of, of, of Jewish values. And then it returns to the question, what is a Jewish value? Right? Who can claim it? Who can use it? And what does it mean? And so it's an interesting time. Where, and they're all post-establishment also. Um, you know, and that's part of their radical nature in a sense. So there's also this divide, not only of orthodox and reform, not only of politically conservative and political, politically liberal, but a generational divide of how, of how language is used. So um, with that, I, I, uh, I thank you all for joining us. Yeah. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.